You're listening to an Empavillion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening and welcome to tonight's conversation, Eating Out, Eating In. My name is Jen Zielinska and I'm the creative director of Empavillion. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the Wandjeri Woiwurrung and the Yulukawilam Boomerang as the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting tonight. I pay my deepest respects to their land, their culture, their ancestors and their elders, past, present, to the future and to any First Nations person, people who are here with us this evening. It could be argued that good food and an exceptional dining experience make Melbourne's heart beat. So, how have pandemic-induced changes to the restaurant industry affected the rhythm of our city's dining culture? For tonight's conversation, we're delighted to be joined by two of Melbourne's most beloved restaurateurs, Hannah Asafiri of Moroccan Soup Bar and Khan Gung of Zunda. Khan honed his skills at award-winning establishments in Sydney, including Cirrus Dining, Mr Wong, Bentley and Noma, before moving to Melbourne in 2018 to helm Zunda. The modern Southeast Asian restaurant soon became a rising star on Melbourne's food scene, making the country's best restaurant lists and earning a hat for two consecutive years in the Good Food Guide. And Khan also will be opening a new restaurant soon in April called Aru. Hannah has dedicated her profession and her private life to removing barriers that prevent women from living prosperous lives. By opening her first restaurant in 1998, the popular Moroccan soup bar, it's an institution for many Victorians, but has also provided employment opportunities for marginalised communities. In March 2017, Hannah was inducted into the Victorian Honour Roll of Women, celebrating her contribution made to local communities and human rights. And finally, we're tremendously grateful to Danny Vallant for joining us tonight to moderate this conversation. Danny is a long-time freelance journalist and restaurant critic, award-winning cookbook author, host of the popular Dirty Linen Hospitality podcast, and ambassador for Fair Share Australia. Danny has written extensively throughout the last 12 months about the effects of COVID on the restaurant industry, asking questions about whether high-end restaurant delivery is here to stay, recommending the best take-home restaurant meals for solo diners, as well as, combining, as, well as compiling hospital resources for COVID-19. Amidst the writing, she's also undertaken an initiative with Ben Shuri to support temporary visa holders through the pandemic via the Attica Soup Project, which I'm sure we'll hear more of tonight. So without further to further ado, I'll hand over to Danny to begin the conversation. Thank you so much, Jen. Hello, everybody. I am very happy to be in a car park with you all on this fine summer's evening. How good is Melbourne? Uh, but yeah, I love M Pavilion and it, uh, even though it is sad that it's not possible to have the uh, structure in the Alexandra Gardens this summer, how lucky are we tonight that we can be here undercover, under shelter. Uh, I'm very sorry that I'm not Ben Shuri. He um, was initially uh, to be here but has been unable to make it. And the reason he's not able to be here is an, is an issue that we're going to touch on a lot. It's to do with staffing and the fact that it's just so hard to find people to work in restaurants at the moment. There are many reasons for that and we'll certainly dig into them. Um, so we've all been dealing with a pandemic and everybody's lives have changed. Personally, I really can't tell the difference between five minutes, five weeks or five months anymore. Time seems to have concertinaed and stretched in very strange ways. 
But even though we keep talking about a global pandemic, it's startlingly evident that we have and continue to have different experiences of it. This week, new COVID cases around the world have averaged 767,000 a day. We're on zero, so there's that. On any of the COVID measures, Australia is super lucky. And yet, the inequalities that were already present in our society have been highlighted in so many ways through the pandemic. In the general community, differences in access to housing, in how much time you've got, in your family situation, and of course, money have threaded through and uh, shaped people's experience of the pandemic. And in restaurants, that filters into things like, who are the backers? What kind of debt did you go into the pandemic with? Have you got a really chummy landlord? The location and the community connection. All these things are important to a business at any time, but they've become particularly crucial over the past year. I mean, things like you could even say some restaurateurs were lucky because their cuisine happened to lend itself well to takeaway which is something that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily consider when you're building a menu, but those kinds of random things suddenly became super crucial. Can you put your food in a container? The recovery is varied too. There's no one story. And I think one of the things that we all love about Melbourne is that variety, that difference and that diversity. It's something that we really celebrate. And so for me, I think it's really important to honour the differences that there are in our recovery and our rebuilding from COVID. There's no single narrative, but we do have two singular narrators with us today. And what I would love for each of you to do is to start with you telling us how the last year has been for you. What kind of pandemic have you been having? How have you navigated yourself? And bring us up to, bring us up to the present. How are things for you now? And then I want to spend most of today talking about the present and the future. What do we need? What, do we, what would we love to see happen in all kinds of arenas? We can get heavy and we can get, keep it light as well. We can go in all kinds of different directions. We'll keep some time for questions at the end. So please do, um, if there's anything that, yeah, we don't want you to be left hanging. Anything that you want to know about the restaurant industry or Melbourne's beautiful hospitality scene, you can find out tonight. So... Hannah, would you like to kick us off? Tell us how your pandemic has been. Um, thank you. And what an amazing, finally, we're not Zooming, but we're actually here in person. So that's great. Um, and learning to Zoom for me, I'm tactile and I kind of read the room, if you like, and get energy from people and the eternal kind of extrovert and so I found lockdown really excruciating. I need people. I began talking to walls and tables and chairs. So that was ridiculous. But thank you for having us. And I think just extending the acknowledgement uh, that we are on lands um, that not only have not been ceded, lands with a chequered past and lands which we believe we all have a role in being allies in resolving and reconciling that kind of the Moroccan super as we are a community business and a business grounded in a mindfulness of our tread and um, an awareness in the way in which we navigate um, how we, our expression of hospitality. So uh, our alliance with First Nations people is not an added extra. It is part and parcel of the way in which we understand community, the way in which we take responsibility uh, to working towards 
that allyship and hopefully reconciliation and resolution. So for the Moroccan super, hospitality is not separate to society and the societal issues and the tensions, which I believe the pandemic certainly crystallised. We came into this pandemic with marginalised groups, hostility towards marginalised groups, women who find themselves vulnerable, asylum seekers, the climate crisis, First Nations, all those issues are a foundation for the Moroccan super that we have built a community in addressing these issues through the way in which we express hospitality. So with no instruction manual and with governments certainly in the beginning flip-flopping around um, from federal to state governments before we actually dealt with the pandemic properly, we gave very confused signals to a community and certainly to hospitality by saying, go to the Grand Prix, go to the NRL, shake hands. So there was mixed messaging and a lot of noise about what was uh, a healthy response. Where are the facts in all this story? How do we respond in keeping our staff safe, in keeping our communities safe? So for us at the Moroccan Super, we actually closed mid-March, way before governments talked about closing and restrictions. And we closed in order to keep communities safe because based on the information and based on what was happening overseas, it became really clear that our space where people congregate on top of each other um, are no longer safe, that those spaces will become a source of transmission based on our understanding of the facts. So we closed to keep communities safe, to keep women safe. And then simply without going too much into the story, we thought, what, are, what is Melbourne? And Melbourne is food. Um, and we wanted to be able to support those that are caring for potentially uh, what was the devastation that was to unfold, and they were the health workers. So we wanted to bring our community on a journey and lead into supporting the health workers by providing food where society began to shut down and that these workers basically didn't even uh, have the capacity to go to supermarkets because we all hoarded all the stuff, there was nothing left for them. So we wanted to be able to provide them fresh, nutritious food every day for the duration of shutdown. Now that for us was, not only gave us meaning, but it also enabled us to support the women who got no government support. Now, um, on the one hand, we applaud the government when they finally got their act together and began to support the industry and in keeping us afloat economically. But at the same time, there was a massive um, underbelly that was left to flounder and fend for themselves with no support whatsoever. And they're temporary visa holders, they're women on, who may be asylum seekers, they're students, they're a whole host of people and section of society that not only... Uh, weren't supported, but they also had nowhere else to go because the entirety of society had shut down. And that forced us, I guess, as women especially, to innovate in a crisis. And I think uh, linking this crisis to other crises and the contribution of women, that women know how to do crisis. Um, and life has made us resilient and agile and we found ways and means of keeping particularly those that didn't get any government support engaged in employment. We let no staff member go. So it's interesting that people are struggling uh, to find staff. I've got many. If somebody wants them, please come along. Um, uh, 
and, and I think that is an expression of our responsibility to both our community and our staff. Now, the one thing, and yes, we absolutely pivoted, and I hate that word, but we reinvented hospitality moving forward in a way that wasn't defined by the crisis, but rather we defined the crisis and how we wanted to respond moving forward. We were let go of our main establishment for 23 years because landlords just went pay or go. Now, it wasn't a fight I wanted to take up when we were devastated as a business. So what we thought is we're much better off focusing in on how we choose to respond to this pandemic. So we reinvented and built separate themed dining rooms, and I'll talk a bit about those later. But each room, in our view, engages or invites our diners to engage with the social justice issues around the themes of those rooms. And they are the themes that we believe are the foundation for enabling our society to maintain a sense of compassion, humanity, social justice. And as I said earlier, these aren't secondary issues for us. So we've built and evolved and redeveloped our new incarnation of the Moroccan Soup Bar um, in a way that hopefully will resonate and is an investment in the next generation that will enable hospitality to be more responsible and more mindful of our impact on the environment. So that's the Moroccan Soup Bar. Wow. Hannah, you're amazing. So, Khan, tell us about how you've navigated the pandemic. Um, so, yeah, as soon as the like pandemic happened and restaurants were shut, uh, forced to shut down, um, we kind of saw like Sunda as a restaurant where we couldn't really do takeaway. Like our food didn't lend well to takeaway, and from that we had to reinvent ourselves and do something totally different and something that we'd never thought that we'd ever do. So. I mean, at the start, we were selling our staff meals because it was pretty popular, it was famous, and a lot of people knew about it and everyone wanted to try it, but they never really got the opportunity to try it. And, like, we basically just tried to come up with new ideas, whatever we can to basically keep the staff busy and keep them employed. Um, and I feel very lucky to have a team and, like, we haven't re lost anyone, and, which is an amazing thing. And there's chefs that have left, and they've left to do other things, bigger things, which I'm extremely proud of. But, yeah, as I said, it's really forced us to do something different. Like, you know, I kind of took that opportunity to, you know, spend more time to learn new skills that I didn't get a chance to do in the past when Sunda was open, because I was always working. I was always there. And... Um, yeah, it gave us the opportunity to kind of bond a bit more as a team as well because, you know, when restaurants open, it's always like go, go, go. And no one kind of just stops for a moment and just thinks about, you know, what they're doing and why they're doing things. And, um, yeah, I mean, at the start it was super hard because all the messages that we got from the government, um, every single week there was something new, something different. So we didn't know what to do and that obviously made it extremely stressful for us. Um, but I guess, like with most other restaurants in Melbourne and all the world, we kind of just kind of held on and just kept, you know, kept our head down and tried to do what we can. And, yeah, I'm extremely proud of what we've done. Yeah, well, I think you've done an amazing job and I had quite a lot of the Sunder at Home 
meals and they were really delicious. And I think one of the things that has been so important through our very different experience of living together in a city and as a society has been different ways that we can find connection. And I think that you were able to do that with your at-home meals. And I think um, particularly of a, a cook-in-the-bag barramundi dish um, with a soy caramel that I instantly became obsessed with. Uh, what I learned from that was something about the way that chefs can think about flavour and think about texture. And so I think there was a way, even though I wasn't able to go to restaurants, there were still really quite deep and profound ways that I could connect with the kinds of things that chefs can do with food. Yeah, so I guess we kind of approached it a bit different to other restaurants. Like, we didn't choose to do takeaway. We, we served chilled food where people would cook at home. So we kind of did half the preparation for them and then they'll kind of finish it off at home. So at the end of the day, the quality would be much better than what they would get if it was just, you know, in a takeaway box taken home. And it kind of, yeah, made us think outside the box to come up with dishes to, you know, have people to finish at home. And I think a lot of people actually enjoyed that because, um, you know, not everyone can cook, but for us to do half the cooking for them, it really made, you know, it made a bit of an experience for them as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it opened people up to different ingredients. Uh, sometimes people you know, might not be uh, brave enough to try a new dish in a restaurant. Um, but, you know, I guess when you have it presented to you in a way, in, you know, in the, in the privacy of your home, you can experiment, you can get a bit daring. So I think you certainly opened that up for people. Now, a lot of you, I'm sure, follow Khan on Instagram and you would have seen his spectacular Paton Crute uh, experimentations, adventures in lockdown number two. Did anybody, anybody catch up with those? So... Um, I was very obsessed with them. And could you, can you talk a little bit about... Well, tell us, first of all, what is a pâte en croûte and why did you start making them? So pâte en croûte is... Uh, pâté is basically like a meat mix. Um, en croûte means it's wrapped in pastry. Um, so it's like a log of meat wrapped in pastry, I guess. Um, I mean, it doesn't sound too good, but trust me, it's delicious. And it does take a bit of skill to make. Um, so... This is something that I've actually been wanting to do for the last probably eight years. It's something like it's a traditional French or the confidence to do it because I've always been, you know, since we've opened Sunda, it's always been about Sunda. I haven't really had time to, you know, learn something new. And it's also something that looks extremely difficult and technical, so I didn't really kind of have the courage to do it. But with the lockdown and, you know, having a bit more time on my hand, I was like, if I'm not going to do it now... I'm probably never going to learn it. And, yeah, I kind of failed, failed and failed, and then eventually it worked out. And, yeah, it became, like, a thing now. Like, a lot of people know about it, and, um, yeah, we started selling it a part of our takeaway packs, and it was really well-received. Yeah, they're really amazing. You totally undersell what it actually is. So I, I already followed um, the Pat on Crute hashtag on Instagram. So I'm just like a Pat on Crute geek from way back. But So you don't just like wrap some meat in some pastry, Khan. <laughs> you um, sculpt something and layer it really amazingly and then you etch and, and create shapes in the pastry. And when it bakes, it looks like a complete artwork. And when you slice it, you get these layers. So there's a big reveal. And Khan did, you know, um, 
the first one that I had was a, a barn me pat on crete. And I think one of the fantastic things about your cooking is the way that you use all different cultural influences. So with a Vietnamese background, obviously there was, you know, a massive French influence in Vietnam, but, you know, also being classically trained, you know, there's all these sort of threads of um, influence that, that weave through it. But to have the flavours of a Vietnamese baguette, a barn me, in this classic French dish, I found it super thrilling. And I think one of the things that I love so much about food and about restaurants is the way that it allows me to connect with people for sure, but also with history and, and different cultures. And to be able to have that experience in lockdown in my 5K was pretty ace. So I just would like to extend a thanks for that. No worries. <laughs> um, so Hannah, Moroccan Soup Bar, it's all about connection and we've sort of touched on the importance of dif finding different ways to connect through this crazy year. Can you talk about some of the ways that your um, business sort of interweaves with the community and some, some of the different ways that it had to do so through the pandemic? Um, I mean, as I was saying earlier, that the, for us, I guess, one of the most difficult thing was there was no instruction manual about how do we navigate uh, this time and space with the values that aren't necessarily shared by governments or the industry itself. Um, the industry and certainly the consultations that were happening between the hospitality industry and governments, um, in, in my view, didn't reflect the need to look after community, to look after people. To So, yes, there, there was an aspect that was definitely relevant, but there was a, a massive pushback from hospitality to governments around unlocking and opening up, and, and it's not a sentiment I shared, in all honesty. I... Uh, I thought it was important to innovate and for us to be creative, but also ultimately to keep community and staff safe. So that wasn't going to happen in unlocking hospitality. In fact, it was going to happen by us being recreating and being creative in how we respond to this pandemic. Um, and as I was saying earlier, that we're not victims of these circumstances. Our choice is how we respond to something that is a global pandemic. Um, and with the awareness and insight that we have about why uh, the pandemic is what it is, that it is here to stay, how do we pivot and reimagine whilst uh, reinvesting in the very values that are the Moroccan super? So, um, yes, initially the drive to feed the healthcare workers as a community campaign, and the community gave so much, so much, and they got behind businesses in a way that I think showed a lot of heart. Um, the problem was industry didn't and corporations didn't. They kept their hands in their pockets and, uh, you know, waited to see what happens and waited it out, whether they be banks and um, super funds and whatever other industry that we, in terms of institutions, they didn't get behind hospitality, in my experience. Um, so we were fending for ourselves and we were finding ways with our communities to reinvent and, and re-evolve, I guess. So, uh, for us, this new theme dining experience, I guess, was born out of necessity, the need for creativity, the need to keep the staff employed, um, and almost revisiting some of the ways hospitality back in the day, your host should be knowledgeable about what is happening in society and be able to engage the diners in, 
the topical issues of the day. Social justice, revolutions, uh, environmental change, all happened in cafes where people congregated in their 20s and 30s. And I think the time is now to redo the same. That what is happening around us at the moment is an opportunity, whilst it has been extraordinarily difficult and devastating. But it is an amazing opportunity for us to reconnect locally, to take responsibility from the casualisation of our workforce to the vulnerable sections of our community and interwove them and infuse them in the very ingredients that we deliver. So for us at the Moroccan Soup Bar, the themed rooms are simply, the garden room is about engaging with the environmental uh, crisis. For us, this is not a matter of political leanings. The environmental disaster is real, it's palpable, we are living it, and we all have a role and we invite our diners to engage with that conversation, as well as being allies to First Nations people. For women, the women's room is about all of us learning to celebrate the contribution of women. We know the extraordinary men and we should, but their counterparts in women, we feel is simply rhetoric. If this society is claiming to want to afford dignity and respect to women, then let's change our behaviour. So we invite our diners to a room where all the books are written by women and we invite them to celebrate the legacy of those and the contribution of those women, certainly from times gone by and to date. The kitchen, for us, food is about nutrition. It's become too much about Instagram shots and celebrity palavers, and we want to be able to say, how do we strip it back and, and uh, demystify that food, we together with whoever's dining with us, make a meal and show you some of the basics, how to enhance flavours through ingredients, that sort of stuff. The, there's two more rooms, bear with me. The boudoir it was a massive tussle between me and myself about, do you have food in a bedroom? And then I thought, yes, no, yes, no, yes. Of course I was going to say yes. So... Um, the boudoir is about intimacy, and in my view, that certainly for the last decade, we have, men have been, uh, women are pushing back against men and toxic masculinity, men are pushing back against women's pushback in not knowing how to be. And for us, it's about there's no platform where we can respectfully come together for a pause and reimagine and redefine intimacy for our time. How do we do it in a way that is playful, that is humorous, that engages responsibly and not wait for governments to regulate? Often our problem is that we continue to wait for governments, we've disengaged from responsibility and decision-making and then we're not happy with what governments do. So for us, it's about our community re-engaging and reactivating our agency. The last room, which we have just set up 10 days ago, is a bit more refined a bit more mature, I guess, for me, after 23 years. It's a whole new menu in a completely new space and it's the main dining room. Um, and, you know, I just thought, if we can't travel, we're going to bring travel to you. But in that room, it is about privilege and um, it is a bit more expensive, the menu's more refined, but it invites us to lean into our privilege and not shy away from it. And with our privileges, no matter who we are, 
we have a responsibility that comes with, um, and it doesn't matter, it's not necessarily along gender lines or women or men. We all have relative privilege to somebody else. And that is nothing to be feel guilty about, but rather it's an invitation that how do we lean into it to make for a society that is more fair, more harmonious, more just, more responsible, and can enjoy the multicultural nature of what Australia has to offer in hospitality. I want to go to all of the rooms. <laughs> uh, it's really interesting that you started off um, speaking about politics and you came around to privilege because what I was thinking about as you were speaking was that it is a privilege to think that you don't have to be political. And I think in Australia, because so many of us are so lucky, we have felt that politics wasn't really something we had to engage with that much. And I certainly felt that you know, it, 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 politics became so much more part of the conversation for me during our lockdown because of those voices that you speak about, those loud voices that were um, uh, wanted to unlock hospitality, quote unquote, um, put it on a poster um, before the health advice said that it was safe. And I, I, you know, I stand with you in that. I felt like oh, I'm I'm happy to go to a restaurant when I'm told by health experts that it's safe to do so. And I really don't want to. I don't think we should open before before then. Um, but to me, the people that were speaking very loudly to that point, we're speaking from a position of privilege, which was not, it, it was thinking about um, things other than, it was, people, it was thinking about people other than those that are without privilege or have less privilege. And it's those people that perhaps can't afford um, to stay home, are forced, uh, you know, it's those classic, yeah. the frontline workers that we heard so much about. Uh, and yeah, I found myself quite, um, Activated by that, and <laughs> you're a very hard person to, to speak over. But I'll just quickly do it. Um, but uh, but um, I think it's it's really important that the loudest voices aren't the voice aren't the only voices that we hear. And representation in hospitality, but in broader society. But let's talk about hospitality. Representation in hospitality was certainly a, 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 multi, a many threaded conversation that I had with a lot of people that you know felt that they um, weren't being represented properly by the um, professional organisations such as the Restaurant and Catering Industry Association, which I think you know does have a seat at the table and has done some really good work, but perhaps doesn't bring some of these um, issues of diversity and representation to the table. Um, and yeah, other, other people that felt that they weren't being represented by those loud voices, as you say. Over to you. <laughs> Look, just simply that there's many different uh, strategies and responses and all are important. And I think the entire industry is trying to survive and pivot and reimagine and, and uh, every approach and response is appropriate, obviously. I guess for me, even when we say things like politics, it doesn't mean the Canberra politics. It just means uh, even our lack of awareness is political. Our lack of involvement in the conversation is political. It's an act where we choose not to take responsibility. So um, I just think important to clarify, it's not this serious, you come to the Moroccan soup bar and we're all going to talk politics at all. It is simply that you resonate with a vision that is more responsible, where our own agency, we take responsibility for the sort of community we want to create. We go local. We support those more vulnerable. All those, we, we care for the climate. So in that sense, it's political. It's not political, Canberra political. That's all I wanted to say. Thank sure. you. Yeah.
Khan, what do you think about the, you know, the, the, the voices that speak for the industry? And do you, do you feel like, you know, is, would you rather be head down creating dishes and running a restaurant or do you feel that, um, you know, you'd like a forum to be part of other conversations or do you feel like you are represented, represented by some of the voices that are already out there? Um, to be honest, like, we didn't really take that much notice on the voices and what they had to say to the government or any of that. I think uh, with us and with most other restaurants in the world, we're too kind of busy to keep our businesses afloat. And just because, you know, these people are saying we need to open again and, like, yeah, sure, like, it might not be the right time to open again, but that doesn't mean we have to follow and open. Like, we, um, when restaurants were allowed to open again, we waited it out to see if it was actually okay to open again. Um, after the first uh, lockdown, we waited two weeks and then we opened again, which meant we were only open for three weeks. <laughs> so we kind of lost two weeks there, but it didn't mean anything, right? And then the second time around, it was the same thing. We waited it out to see if it was safe to do so. And obviously that's because we've got the responsible to look after our staff and our customers. But yeah, as I was saying, like it doesn't, like sure, like there's these voices that are speaking for the industry, but it doesn't mean we have to follow with them and be a part of that as well. Like we're kind of, yeah, too busy doing our own thing. It's great to hear that you're busy doing your own thing now. Like how are things in the CBD, Khan? To be honest, it's not great. <laughs> um, I mean, the first few weeks of opening have been pretty amazing. Um, I mean, obviously there's still restrictions and we, there's only so many people we can fit in, but I think we're extremely lucky to be in the position that we're in um, because all the restaurants in the city have restrictions and they can't seat um, to the maximum capacity of the, what they usually do. And for us, luckily, we were able to do a pop-up where we can split the team in half and that was how we kind of changed our business model to keep all the staff employed and keep everyone busy working full-time. Um, and, I mean, it is hard to do that and we're lucky that we were able to pull it off. But, um, yeah, it, it hasn't been too bad, but, I mean, it can be a lot better. And what about, you know, the, the at-home um, offering? Like, you're on the Providor platform, are you? We were, yeah. You were. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that maybe answers the question of how is it going. Um. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's, it would have been, it's, it's still going pretty well, but by doing the pop-up, Providor and Sunda, it would have been stretching the team out too much. Okay. Yeah. So do you think there is still a place for a sort of premium at-home offering? I think as soon as restaurants started to open up again, um, there was a decline in sales. Um, I think everyone just wanted to go out again. Um, so I think, like, for the next few months, there might not be, but I think eventually people will appreciate being at home again. I think it's really interesting. You know, I wrote a story about it recently, as Jen mentioned, and there was a, um, a sense from some people that, you know, the at-home model was, was there to stay in some form that people were going to have, you know, semi-catered dinner parties by having, you know, food from their favourite restaurants in home without needing to worry about getting a babysitter or, um, yeah, getting into the city or whatever it might be. But I don't know, like, what do you guys think? I, I'm just all about being in restaurants now. Eating out, Eating out yay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think... And also containers. Like, how sick of containers are we? I just could not. 
just could not deal with the containers. So I think certainly if we um, if it's if it's to stick around, I think the sustainability of the packaging is just such a huge issue. I just could not look at my recycling bin. It was just really made me feel sad and, and sick and want to go to restaurants. Um, Hannah, how are you finding it? You know, I think there is such a difference between the CBD and the neighbourhoods, and I suppose the city's been the jewel of Melbourne, you know, and it's, so, it's you know, since the late 80s, it's, it's gone from strength to strength, you know, activating the laneways, um, late-night culture, and, but we've seen with the, um, through the pandemic and the lockdowns and, of course, people still not being back to work in full capacity that the CBD is the sort of like the scary place. Uh, it's... it's it's, um, it's such a mixed picture. Uh, there are restaurants opening, so there's, I guess, big money behind developments like 80 Collins, where we're seeing some premium restaurants. Uh, but I've heard from cafe operators that they're absolutely hemorrhaging. Uh, so it's a really, it's a really mixed picture. It's, it's, that, it's that diverse picture that we mentioned at the start. The neighbourhoods, um, on the other hand, seem to be doing better, but I do still see a lot of closed restaurants and... Um, you know, restaurants that look a little bit shaky in in strip in strip shopping. But how are you finding it in in North Fitzroy, Hannah? Um, look, I guess for us, we've never, whilst we have been and are a successful business, our measure of success is not monetary alone. So yes, we need to be viable. We need to survive, and just in terms of sustainability, that we use biodegradable containers, compostable containers. They cost more. Um, but when we pivoted to just doing takeaway, it was important for us to stay consistent to the values of care for the environment. Um, we have solar panels, we compost, that we don't go to a landfill. So all those things are still part and parcel of our recreated spaces. Um, I also think uh, whilst people want to go out, I think people are really learning to enjoy the outdoors in a different way. So take out in terms of picnics and in terms of not necessarily having catered at home, but eating out and enjoying spaces um, that we haven't previously. And I think a lot of our behaviour has changed and will continue to change because the pandemic and the, certainly the lockdown in Victoria was long. It was four months of... Um, of a pause and for us to rethink what is important, what's important in terms of our work, do we want to continue coming to the CBD, do we want to work from home, how zoomed out are we? But an opportunity to, for community, I think, to get behind the businesses that they endorse. So I think those two things made themselves more evident. Um, I reckon Cellicap and certainly Melbourne has really poured a lot of thoughts and resources into trying to kickstart kick hospitality and the other events. I don't know that other councils have followed suit in the same way, so that businesses are left to their own devices, whether they will survive, will stay afloat, are they community businesses, are they more monetary driven, do they own their buildings, can they sustain this time? I think there's so many variables as to the next year and who will and won't survive. I just think what will definitely sustain us is our connection to community. And when a community gets behind you and keeps you afloat, then for someone like us, we couldn't ask for more. So one of the things, there's a, there's a couple of conversations that I feel like I'm having a lot with people in hospitality at the moment. And probably the first one is staffing. So apart from Hannah, everyone else in Melbourne yeah. is struggling to find staff. Uh, there are a few reasons for that. Um, as, as Khan touched on, some people uh, through, you know, uh, I suppose, 
pulling back a bit and having that time to think have gone on to do other things. So some are doing, realised they wanted to do, they had a hospitality dream that they wanted to pursue, but other people have um, moved to, to other industries. Some people have felt that hospitality wasn't um, giving them what they needed. But I think the main thing has been that there are fewer international workers around. Um, that's because our Prime Minister um, inhospitably told people at the start of April that if they couldn't support themselves that it was time to head home. Um, so a lot of people did, and a lot of people people still kept leaving over over the months um, through 2020. Um, and of course, we don't have backpackers coming in, which is so much um, you know a, a workforce for our hospitality industry. And we could talk about agriculture; that's a whole other um, can of unpicked worms. Um, but I mean, Khan, what do you think is going to happen? with staffing, because the other th conversation I'm having with people is the end of JobKeeper, and I think those two conversations are interwoven. When JobKeeper finishes as, as it's slated to at the end of March, what's going to happen? Are there going to be restaurants closing, staff flooding onto the street, or are these staffing shortages with us for a while? I think um, it's going to be different with every single restaurant, and it's going to depend on what they can actually do um, for themselves. I think, I mean, maybe some restaurants can, you know, operate with less staff and just keep, you know, pivoting and seeing how long they can go with less staff and doing the covers that they do. Or there's people like me that um, I'm opening a restaurant in April and it was meant to be open last year, but it never ended up happening. So for me, I need to find staff. And it is extremely hard at the moment because I think the government didn't understand <laughs> how important visa workers were for the hospitality industry. I think they make up, I don't know the statistics, but they make up a lot of, you know, the hospitality industry and yeah, a lot of them have gone home. So I think at, like we've been advertising to, you know, hire new people and there's just not no one around anymore. It's really interesting. I think one of the flow-ons from that will be that you are forced to employ people at a lower skill level, people that you can train up. And I mean, there can be, there'll be some great stories out of that. You know, I, I spoke to a publican in Richmond recently and she was um, kind of stalking the orthodontist to scoop up teenagers and get them down to <laughs> give them jobs. And I think, you know, if there are Aussie kids that are getting um, taken on by really good employers and getting enthusiastic about the industry and treated really well, then I think, you know, that could be a real COVID silver lining for us. But I think there isn't that um, thirst among um, young Australians to go into hospitality. It's seen as something that you might do while you're waiting to do something else. I mean, is there anything that you can think of, Hannah, that could change that perception? Well, I think if they find meaning in, in a sense of relevance. Um, so for us, our staff resonate with our vision, with our politics, with our principles and values. Um, and often the women who we employ uh, we circuit break that cycle of crisis and disadvantage. So they're not required to have a skill set necessarily. Um, and we enable them with the latest kind of partnership that we've established with a hospitality in institute like Box Hill, that we train them up. And there's someone here from Box Hill. Hi, how are you going? That we train them up in order, and we train them up within the workplace in order that they develop the, you know, the skill set to then transition and move on to something else. So our whole model, back of house, enables those who come in through our employment to start from 
whether it be crisis or disadvantage or whatever else, and then transition. They then champion those very causes themselves. So if they find a sense of resonance, meaning and relatability in the organisation, then it's not as temporary. And they become solid allies, I guess, and they create their own businesses no matter what they go on and do. I'd love just to talk about the broader project of hospitality. You know, obviously you've got a lot of... um, aims for your business. But, I mean, one of the reasons that I, I love food and I love writing about it and no one ever gets sick of it is that it allows me to engage with so many different people on so many levels and to instantly get to the core of what makes people tick. Um, and I think restaurants are such a brilliant forum for that. Um, Khan, how has it felt to be in restaurants? Do you feel like people are thirsting for it in a way that they weren't before? Are people having different kinds of experiences than they were before? Um, I think it's the industry right now, uh, well, in the past maybe three, four years is a lot different to how it was 10 years ago. Um, Obviously, I think what turns people off the hospitality industry is the long hours, um, being on your feet, working nights and weekends. But I feel that the people that are in the industry now, um, or the team at Sunday, it just feels like a family. Like, um, I think we all kind of do whatever we can do to look out for each other and support each other the most we can. And that's not just me trying to support them, it's them trying to support me as well. And I feel that that's how the industry needs to be. And I think to achieve that, it's just, it comes down to the culture that you have in your establishment. And for us, it's always been a big thing to obviously, you know, eat good staff meals and just, you know, when it's time to eat, everyone needs to sit down. And it's just, we're basically creating a family rather than, you know, seeing it as a restaurant business. And I think, like, most of my chefs have been with me since opening. And I think it's a massive achievement because a lot of chefs don't really make it through opening because it's always, you know, extremely long hours and stuff. But, um, yeah, it's been... Yeah, that's how, how I see it. What's been one of the staff meals this week? Um, this week, we actually, we just put pork on the menu, so we've got a lot of pork trim. <laughs> so we've been having a lot of pork different ways. But, um, yeah, I mean, today we had pork three ways. Um, it was a pork salad, stir-fried pork, and a fried pork. <laughs> it was pork on pork on pork. It was pretty amazing, to be honest. <laughs> uh, can I have a job? <laughs> staff meal at Sunder sounds really good. Um, okay, let's, I think it must be around about time to go to questions. Okay, um, let's do that. Has anybody got a question that they'd like to put to any of us? Yeah. Um, hi, look, um, I've just been to uh, Philippe's on my way here and I had his version of uh, meat in pastry and it was pretty good. Um, and uh, I just wanted to say that... Um, here in his kitchen, he's got three of my ex-international students from Le Cordon Bleu, which he's paid throughout the, the pandemic to, to keep... And he was doing uh, a lot of uh, home uh, cooking for home from, from the restaurant. Um, I, I'm, what's probably scaring me at the most is, at the moment is um, local apprentices, as you sort of touched on, Danny, was that um, they're not... If you advertise for apprentices and young young people, local people, and I'm a product of William Anglis back in 1981, you know I know what I know what uh, you know, and I'm very proud of Melbourne and this, the scene. What I'm interested in is is what do you think we can do to 
to uh, energise and to get the young people into cooking again? What can we do to, as, as an industry, really, to, um, to make that happen? I think that there are young people getting into cooking, and I think it's been like this for a long time, that people are getting into it. I mean, I remember when I started cooking about 12 years ago, the first year of my apprenticeship, the class had like four different classes, all the classes were full, and by the end of it, um, there was only like one or two classes left. And I think it's just the way the restaurants and employers treat their staff and the culture that they... I mean, I'm not saying that I hated it, but like 10 years ago, it was a lot different, you know. You were yelled at a lot, you were treated kind of poorly, the hours were long, and I think a lot of people don't see it that way. They think that's how it's always been, so that's how it should be, but it's not. So I think it's up to the employers themselves to actually you know, treat their staff in a different way to make them feel, you know, valued and make, make them feel like they want to be there. And I think, yeah, a lot of restaurants don't actually do that. And just maybe to add, that give them opportunities, a pathway through uh, engaging them. Maybe initially they start out as wait staff, but then they become interested because of the environment and the culture, as you said, and then they want to train up as chefs and whatever else. Yeah. Yeah, like we currently have like kitchen hands helping us out in the kitchen and they wanted to be chefs as well. So I think a lot of people don't get that opportunity and I think it's all about giving opportunity. I was wondering whether the uh, speakers would like to talk about their landlord experiences. <laughs> Hannah would love to talk about her landlord experiences. <laughs> To be honest, I don't have much, too much to say. I mean, I guess I think like landlords, like everyone wants a rent reduction or whatever, right? But we got to understand that they've got their own lives to live as well. They've got their own expenses as well. So for us to, you know, ask for, you know, a rent reduction for longer than that, that they can afford or they say they can is kind of not fair on them. So I think it's up to us to kind of do our part and work as hard as we can to make the restaurant, you know, survive as well? Um, so for me, uh, we were in a building for 23 years and had leases and whatever. And, um, and I guess the pandemic really tested the character of landlords. And yes, they have their own uh, responsibilities. And I think governments leaving it to individuals to negotiate was irresponsible, in all honesty. That... Um, and it's not blaming the individual landlord. Nobody saw this pandemic coming. However, it was an opportunity for landlord to work with the tenant and some of them didn't. So for us, it was a matter of pay or go. And because of the formula of the Moroccan super, that we are very small profit margin, that we didn't have the means to sustain paying when we're closed. So we just went, okay, I was devastated for one day. In all honesty, I was really devastated because for us, it was more than employment. It was our very autonomy, our legitimacy as women, as a business in community. And then we saw it as an opportunity to reinvent. So from a landlord perspective, and I was saying this earlier, if we want the heart, the pulse of hospitality to survive and sustain, I think governments should come together with landlords, real estate agents, 
and restaurateurs and revalue their properties. As long as there are restrictions for how many people we can sit, we cannot keep the same value of overheads. It's just in terms of survivability, you, someone like us will not be able to sustain. Our profit margin is very small, but it's deliberately small. So unless governments are visionary and think about if we don't want to gentrify hospitality, if we want to maintain the quirkiness and the charm of Melbourne, then I think it's about putting in place a two, three-year plan, work with landlords, they can subsidise them. I'm not saying we don't pay them anything, we certainly will, but we pay in accordance with the restrictions that are in place because restrictions are here to stay for the next at least two or three years, judging by what's happening in terms of the pandemic overseas. So... I think we need visionaries, we need governments, local councils, landlords, estate agents and tenants to come together and reimagine and revalue for a short term, at least, in, a, in order to enable the heart and soul of hospitality to sustain. Yeah, I, th I think one of the risks of um, people such as yourself or businesses such as yours not being given considerate, financial consideration in some way, coupled with the problems in finding skilled staff, do risk uh, our restaurant industry blanding out somewhat when you don't have people who, who are really skilled and proficient and can work at a, at a fine clip um, producing food, then there are pressures on kitchens to buy in more product, to, you know, to not train people how to fillet a fish, to not how to, to break down break down a side of lamb. You know, you lose those skills and, and once they're gone, it's really hard to get them back uh, not in an individual level, but as part of a kitchen process, as part of that machinery of what just naturally happens in kitchens. So I think um, there is a lot to lose. And what we, we it's not just a matter of a business closing. It's a, it's a question of, you know, what skills are we losing? What creativity is, um, yeah, just being being thrown to the wind? We've got a question over here. Oh, yep. oh, over here. Cameron. Hello. Um, first of all, um, thank you for this. Uh, I would love to be having staff meals at your place. I'd just like to say that pork on pork on pork sounds <laughs> bloody awesome. And But also just to acknowledge the importance of staff meals and how, well, you give people energy to go through service, you build camaraderie. And also that I, one thing that I've found in staff meals is that it's, it's a great opportunity to solve problems of service and sections. So anyway, I think it's a really, really wonderful thing. Here is my question. One of the things that terrifies me about this post-COVID era that we're about to move into is we could see a change in the restaurant landscape. The one thing that defines Melbourne is the fact that all these small independents have been had the ability to make their mark to have a restaurant, to have a go, and make a livelihood from cooking and feeding people. I worry that in this post-COVID landscape, we will see a corporatisation of the restaurant scene. And maybe if we could have a bit of a conversation about that, do you feel the same way? How are we able to flow around this terrible impediment that could be part of our industry moving forward? Uh, it's a great question, Cam Smith, and anyone who doesn't already listen to Eat It on a trip, thanks for what you do for the industry, Cam. 
Um, I'll just quickly pick that up. So I think what we've just been talking about as far as rents and uh, staffing certainly plays into what you're talking about, Cam. Um, I think something else that probably we haven't touched on much is what's the role of consumers in, in this. And I think it's that people need to be prepared to pay the true cost of food and the true cost of dining. So I think there is, there is something about that. It's, it's, I mean, you could look at it at every point along the supply chain from, from farm to plate. And um, it's a pretty broken system in so many different ways. But I do think that we've been trained to think that food is cheap and it shouldn't be. But I'd love to hear what you guys think. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that, that a lot of people do think that food should be cheap. Um, so, sorry, I just blanked out. <laughs> um, I think for, for us, like what we've had to do um, to, you know, keep the business afloat is... Um, so, I mean, when the pandemic happened and one thing that came to mind was we were never going to let go of any of our stuff, no matter what. We had to change things up and just do things in certain ways where we can keep them employed. And I think um, a big part of that is um, obviously we, you know, eventually changed to a set menu restaurant. And I mean, that's kind of something that we've been wanting to do for a while, but we were forced into it because I think with, um, you know, with consumers and stuff, when we get restaurants in and when, there's, uh, when we get consumers in and there's restrictions, we just can't afford for someone to come in and, you know, basically have a bowl of noodles and go. Um, and I think what consumers should always also understand that it's their responsibility to, uh, responsible to um, kind of, like, Basically, I think what is broken about the restaurant industry at the moment is with people doing no-shows. And um, I think a lot of people don't understand that for a small restaurant that can only seat, let's say, 40 covers and there's a table of four and, you know, they, don't, they just don't rock up and they don't see that anything is wrong with that. And, like, that's, you know, for a restaurant that has, can only seat 40 covers, that's like a massive thing. So I think a lot of consumers kind of need to be more responsible when eating out. And just to add to that, I think, I mean, you're right, we were talking about the very issues that will keep hospitality and its charm for Melbourne and its diversity and, and not gentrify in this or corporatise it. Um, but there, there also is, um, I think, one of the issues, I guess, um, as we were saying earlier, that if governments and local councils and if there was a commitment to addressing some of the reality, it's not so much uh, the value of food and how much we sell it and how much we don't sell it. I think there's another element in it that is ridiculous reviews, that you have somebody who is just eating <laughs> at your establishment and all of a sudden they're a food critic and then they write review after review of rubbishing your establishment. That's not necessarily grounded in um, understanding what your service is about. I think that is also a factor in businesses folding. Sadly, we live in that sort of superficial world. If we want to talk about 
some of the real issues and tensions and factors, that is one of them. A lot of restaurants are wasting too much time sitting on, oh my God, I've got an awful review, I better answer it, and you get one after another. I just think that is ridiculous. What is the role of food critics? Surely they're the reviewers. And yes, people should be able to say what they think, but say it to the establishment. Come up and say, hey, that was crap, buddy. Like, give me something better. That's fine. But when it's so anonymous, it becomes so damaging and time-consuming and people kind of go, oh, my God, and get beside themselves. So there's that. There's the cost. There's the staff. There's... Um, and I'm sorry I heard people talk about pork on pork on pork. Man, try vegetarian. It's awesome. I promise you. <laughs> I promise you. And, I promise you. And, and on top of it, we found alternatives to anchovies, to pork, to whatever, that are a taste sensation in your mouth. I promise you, just try it out. And it, and it is more responsible and it ensures that our tread alongside the rest of hospitality is sustained. So yes, consumer definitely has a responsibility in choosing where to go. Our communities, I can say, are generous. What I mean by generous is even when some of our staff is training and we spill a bit of tea on you, they're forgiving. They, <laughs> they don't sit there and write an awful review because they understand that the concept, it doesn't mean we are compromising the standard of what we deliver at all. It simply means there's a recognition of the context and the nuance of the business and the service that we're trying to provide. So I think through this pandemic, the opportunities are extraordinary for businesses to be more responsive, change the culture of bullying and aggression and, and meaningless, just uh, disposable staff, but actually to care about the casualised nature of workforce and to really, if you look after them and enable them a pathway, they will certainly, I mean, for me, I can't get rid of them. If someone wants staff, come and get them. <laughs> um, and, and whilst it's, it's funny, it's actually quite true. And so through that, we've had to creatively rethink how do we th throughput them um, through a pathway. So initially it was basic training around English and it didn't have to compete with their work. We paid for it and it was supported by Box Hill. And then it was some of them wanted chefing, some of them wanted leadership and management. Um, others now at the moment, we set up a more refined, I don't know how refined, but more refined version of the Moroccan super, of which when a staff member has been with us for a few years, we will place her in that space. And yes, our workspace is women only for a whole host of reasons, which if you're interested, come and talk to me about later. But yeah, so vegetarian, all right. We've got a question over here. Thanks very much for the conversation. It's been really fascinating. Um, it's a conversation, sorry, a question both to um, Khan and Hannah, but if you were starting out now, I guess not starting out at the very beginning of your career, but um, making that decision about opening your first restaurant or not restaurant, um, faced with the current hospitality landscape, uh, would you open the same type of place that you have? Um, and that's whether concept, model, location, all of those factors. Um, in all honesty, reinventing hospitality and I had to draw on my own mortgage to fund it in a lockdown. Um, really happened and it was very much uh, similar to starting out. So for me, it was about cutting losses with the old formula and recognising that formula of people eating communally, sitting on top of each other, was no longer a viable one. 
So, yes, whilst we were devastated, at the same time, it felt to me at the moment that we're completely building from scratch and we're building a business model that is still reinvesting in those values because they are more important now through this pandemic in terms of what we saw and the impact on the most marginalised, particularly that governments are only talking about economic recovery. And economic recovery has given way to all those commitments that we've made to the climate, to asylum seekers, to women, to First Nations. They have fallen by the wayside in the name of economic recovery. So for us, you can't just have social justice for a small group of people. You can't just recover a community for some people. That these values became more important and that's why we established hospitality in all honesty. It happened at a time where I was talking to myself and maybe one other person and going, do you reckon people will come and eat in a bedroom? Do you think somebody will... But at the same time, it was about that we look inward for what our commitment is, what our values are, and reinvest in them. When I was saying there was no instruction manual, there wasn't. And for me, it was a decision. Do we want to be part of the rebuild or do we want out? And... Being out was easy. A business that was devastated, that was the model that ours was, that was the easy answer. And then I thought, life has prepared us. Come on, it's only a pandemic, it's all right. <laughs> but, um, so yes, I'll do exactly what we've done now in the hope that it resonates. So we do it, we offer it up. I hope the community learns to appreciate its quirky and, and it's brave. It's brave in a world that, you know, where governments don't value uh, those principles. So we'll see what happens. What about you, Khan? I think it's a great question. Sorry, can you just repeat the question again? So if you were to open your first restaurant yeah. now, uh, would you do the same I thing? I still do it. Um, I think I spoke to you um, a couple of months ago on the phone and I said that because we reinvented ourselves so many times, it's felt like I've opened three restaurants in the past year. And, I mean... <laughs> Opening a restaurant is, you know, it's always exhausting. And um, I think when I did open my first restaurant, one of the advice that was given to me was, if you're not ready now, you're never going to be ready. So I think if you, you know, truly believe in your product and love what you do, then just kind of, I, I would do it again. And I would do it. And I'm, I am doing it again. I'm opening a restaurant in April. And uh, yeah, like, there's no holding back. I'm just going to go for it. Tell us about the new place. We cook with fire. <laughs> That's it. The <laughs> um, yeah, new place, is, it's um, kind of just tapping into, like, you know, how food was cooked in the past. Um, so we're going to do a lot of fermentation, um, a lot of old techniques, you know, cooking over fire and just, just basically cooking from raw ingredients, different techniques that were used back in the old days and um, down Little Collins Street. Yeah. All right. See you there. Um, I think we've got time for one more question before we um, hang out with DJ Martin Frawley and have a couple of drinks. Uh, thanks. I'm sort of more from the consumer point of view and also, um, yeah, uh, from a local government perspective. I'm, I think you live in St Kilda, don't you? Um, what would you want You've mentioned governments a lot and you haven't been very specific. I mean, I can see some good things like those uh, things, the spaces outside, which I think are fantastic. 
Um, what would you want local government in particular to do? Because they are the face of the street. Mm. Um, yep. So, well, thank you for being here from local government. I need an audience with local government. Um, so, basically, uh, it's been inconsistent. So, different local governments have responded in different ways. The uh, Melbourne has been great. I mean, even if you look at their allocated outdoor, that they've put some nice kind of planter boxes around. You look at Yarra, I'm sorry, they've put those brick things that are anti-terror... Um, roadblocks and then they've put a pink thing around them and as though that is supposed to entice you to eat on St George's Road. Like that is seriously lacking in vision, in creativity. Uh, the other thing in terms of local council, they haven't interpreted the state conversation and it hasn't filtered through. So that a lot of them haven't allocated any public space. Us, for example, did not get one inch of land Whilst government was talking about outdoor seating and we're transitioning to outdoors, local, because we were on a clearway in terms of the front of uh, shop, um, and we talked about the parkland, and they said, oh, we can't give you the parkland for commercial use because it's public land. So there were all these mixed messaging in terms of not making it easy and constantly putting in place roadblocks. So I naughtily built a pergola at the back and it was in the middle of lockdown and I called our local council. Nobody answered. We built it. And then we had a complaint. Local council came in as cowboys and went, oh, that needs to be taught. We're trying to survive. You're supposed to help us. So now we're in the process of retrospectively negotiating how we can survive by creatively, um, cre you know, uh, redesigning our spaces. So what local governments can do is have a consistent message from state government, talk to landlords, revalue the value of their lands, talk to um, local government and state government, be on the same page. So when you call local government, they go, oh, no, Dan Andrews doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, who says that? That, oh, he's making announcements that aren't necessarily relevant to our area. Conversations like that make our journey, whilst devastating, even more so. For me, the difficulty and the frustration was not the pandemic. The pandemic, it was global. But the frustrating conversation with trying to get over the line, basic permits, and, and whilst government indicated there'd be waiving of planning permits, that didn't happen at a local level. We had to retrospectively apply for a planning permit. And the cost of that is $1,200 that we didn't have. So there's many, many conversations that I think consistency, revaluing property, as we mentioned earlier, supporting landlords, governments can support them to, to get over this two-year hump probably um, and have a clear vision. If you want businesses to survive, ensure that that is at least beautiful enough. I mean, I can't feed people on St George's Road. It's actually smoke and trams and trucks and you need to be able to allocate spaces and ensure that you can repurpose spaces, car parks, whatever, consistently not just for some who can push back and, you know, have a voice to government, but for all businesses, particularly the small guy, to survive. Yeah, do you have any views on that, Khan? I think I just agree with everything Hannah has to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, let's just agree to agree with everything that Hannah said for the whole conversation and call it a night. Uh, please do stick around um, and hang out with DJ Martin Frawley. It's been an absolute pleasure to moderate this conversation. Thank you so much, Hannah Asafri and Khan Yuan. Um, your restaurants are great. Everyone should go to them. Um, I'm definitely going to eat in the bedroom um, and <laughs> I'm definitely eating some fermented stuff on Little Collins Street come April. Uh, thank you so much for your participation in the conversation. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.